Rebecca Zablocki is a New York-born, Connecticut-based interdisciplinary artist. She received her BFA from the Hartford Art School in 2014 and is currently pursuing an MFA in the Confluence MFA program, a low-residency interdisciplinary program dedicated to regenerative culture based at the University of New Mexico. She creates work about chronic illness using fibers and found objects. Rebecca lives with chronic illness. She is also a caregiver for her disabled partner who suffers from chronic pain caused by a degenerative condition. Within her work, she uses craft-based techniques such as rug making and sewing to create objects indicative of domestic spaces, as well as found objects commonly present within medical spaces and chronically ill lives. The imagery in her work is an amalgamation of the inner workings of her mind, tangible experiences, and the familiar objects and symbols that are part of the medical discourse. She uses pattern and color to mirror memories of pediatric medical spaces and the monotony of being confined within a bedroom, simultaneously creating a bridge between the perseverance it requires to create a comfortable, healthy environment and body, and how we discover beauty, joy, and humor in the spaces around us. Creating a dreamlike conversation through these objects to open a window into the world of chronic illness and to provide a safe environment that encourages empathy, awareness, and understanding. Exploring how we comfort ourselves and one another with beauty and care and by being a silly goose. (laughs) That was a new addition. (laughs) (laughs) That is so beautiful. Um, can you speak to how difficult it is <laughs> to write a statement like that? Um, yeah, I mean, I I think part of the problem is when you're talking about serious things, um, people automatically go into like a certain headspace. So then like when my humor comes out, I think for the most part, everyone starts to like realize like where they are. <laughs> Or like in what conversation they're living in. Um, But I think like that mainly falls in them having a better understanding of who I am, which I don't think is something that I can do in one paragraph. Really, Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's really beautiful and inviting. And um, I do want to talk a little bit at some point, maybe about humor as a tool for connection. But let's start with... um, what place do you call home currently? And also what place feels like home? So these may be the same place or different places. Yeah. Um, so I currently live in Connecticut um, with my partner. And I think that living with my partner is the only part of that that feels like home. Yeah, I think you've described before, um, like, a specific area. Uh, Probably in the Catskills. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, so, like, that being in the mountains and having access to other places is important to me, um, as well as access to water. I find being near the ocean or large bodies of running water uh, for whatever reason, I don't feel safe unless <laughs> I feel like they're within 10 miles of me. So, um, yeah, there's something there, but I don't know what it is just yet. 
Yeah, it's ancestral. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, I wanted to start with the question, what are you working on right now? Yeah. Um, so right now I am working on a lot of things that will be part of um our show at the Santa Fe Arts Institute. Um, so I'm kind of trying to uh build an installation while giving each piece within that installation the attention it deserves. So I'm making rugs, I'm writing a lot, um, I'm experimenting with how writing will be displayed in a gallery setting as well as in print. Um, <clears throat> so kind of 10 different things at once is what I'm working on. Yeah, will you say a little bit more about the writing? So... I uh, have been kind of writing down memories um, from past experiences, being sick, being in the hospital, um, just from childhood, as well as writing letters to these sort of landmarks in my mind um, that really stand out in those memories. So um, letters to the lollipops on the counter at the doctor's office, um, the letters to nurses that had really ugly scrubs on, um, et cetera. So I could go on forever <laughs> letters to my illness itself. Um, and this is helping me not only just fully remember things, but, um, I think this is where some of the humor comes in more clearly to my work. So I think that that's sort of a an entryway for that. Does that feel like a healing process too when you're writing the letters? Definitely. And I think I have never been confident in my um, verbal communications in general. So I think that writing these and feeling confident because I'm the only one that knows these memories and seeing people's reactions to reading them is helping me realize like the validity of it all and um, the importance and that it does matter um, and what I have to say can matter and does matter. So I think that that's all part of it. Hmm. Are you comfortable going back in time a little bit and telling us about your journey with chronic illness? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I have to start pretty far back, but <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Um, so I am now 30 um, and have experienced been experiencing chronic illness my whole life. Um, so starting at six months, I've I had surgeries that were less serious, but um, my parents had to deal with me in the hospital. I had really bad asthma. Um, I also had Epstein-Barr, um, which causes chronic fatigue. So my parents were just wondering why their baby was so tired. Um, and then throughout the years, pretty much until I was 12, uh, 
I was just sick constantly with different things. In the third grade, I had strep throat 12 times, um, constant ear infections and uh, bladder infections, etc. So it just was this endless list of health problems um, that my parents and I were dealing with and trying to figure out. And then uh, when I was 12, I was diagnosed with mono, um, which kind of, I think, was a wake-up call to my doctors in a way. So they started to realize that when I wasn't healing from mono, there was something else wrong. Um, So that's when they started doing more testing. Um, And at the time, I was diagnosed with celiac disease. So I was able to get on a diet that helped a lot of my health problems, um, as well as just kind of the emotional and mental toll that all of that took. So therapy, um, you know, there are probably 10,000 different entry points within each person's chronic illness that you can take that would be helpful, but isn't going to solve the whole problem. Um, and so being on a gluten-free diet helped, um, but over the years, my asthma got worse again. So um, I was hospitalized a few times into my teenhood, which is sometimes surprising because often if you have asthma as a kid, it tends to get a little bit better over time. Um, and then I, um, so my doctor basically put me on a dairy-free diet, which helped me as well. So over this this whole time, I'm developing an understanding of how what we put in our body matters um, and how it affects our health and how it's not just you know, Western medicine that we need to help us stay healthy and stay functioning, really. Um, And eventually, uh, when I was 25, I was also diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis, which is a, um, it's basically arthritis within the spine, but it affects all of your joints. Um, So I was experiencing chronic pain and um, days where I wasn't able to walk. um, And all of this shows up in chronic fatigue, stomach problems, skin problems. Um, I could go on. So (laughs) that's just kind of the base of my diagnoses and uh, the general, the the overarching problems. (laughs) Yeah, I'm thinking about how it must be for you when, you know, people who maybe are not as familiar with chronic illness like inquire and they might ask, well, what do you have? <laughs> and and it's actually not a matter of what do you have? It's like, where are you today? Like what's going on in this um, ecosystem of Becca's body, which is maybe just really a lot more sensitive than another ecosystem in another right. person's body. I've been thinking a lot in my own work about the ecology of the body and just the fact that we're made up of, you know, trillions of cells that are made up of beyond trillions of bacteria and just that this is such a delicate ecosystem. Um, And I don't know if this question resonates, but what is your relationship to the word sensitivity? 
Well, I guess being someone that has celiac disease, you automatically think of like food sensitivity. Um, but I have always felt that um, I have been extremely sensitive to any sort of external anything coming in, you know, like I am aware that I can't use a lot of cleaning products. I don't even go down the laundry detergent aisle in the supermarket because I can't handle it. Um, I, you know, I know that how my emotions affect my body physically. And I know that if I have something really stressful coming up, I'm probably not going to feel well at some point after that. Um, Emotional sensitivities and being, you know, empathetic to people around you when you have experienced a lot of health issues or um, even traumatic experiences and you know that someone you know is going through something like that, you're automatically like attuned to it and you want to do everything that you can to help them even though you know that you probably can't. <laughs> um, so I think I think I am just sensitive (laughs) so sensitivity is emotionally too I cry all the time (laughs) um is just says a lot I think for me as well yeah and I think that that makes sense I think a lot of artists or people who make art for a living are are sensitive and um so one of my questions is kind of a long one, <laughs> but it relates to what we're talking about. So in this podcast, um, my intention is to illuminate artists who work at the intersection of art and healing. And for many of us, we have what I might call like a wounded healer, which you've already been speaking to a little bit. So um, I guess the question is, how does art assist you in expressing your experience with chronic illness? So I think that that can be really directly applied when answering about my work. And I think it can be applied to so many other artists, but um, for me within my process alone, for example, when I'm making rugs, um, some of which you're familiar with, but uh, for the listeners that are not, I've been making maps um, of, for one, for example, is a pain map. Um, So it's a self-portrait. And the way that I have kind of developed the thought process as well as just the imagery in general is I um, experiencing pain or symptoms with any within any given day. And then that day I am drawing a blind contour self-portrait and imagining what this pain or what these symptoms feel like and look like. Um, so I am putting them down in color and shape onto that self-portrait, which then eventually becomes a rug um, and lives in a larger scale and can be touched. Um, So I think that's just one example of how that happens within my work um, more directly, but I think it happens in a lot of other ways too, that I can't necessarily put the full process into words. Yeah. I think you already mentioned it too, with regards to the letters. I mean, 
I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, (laughs) so you started making rugs with your hands, like stitch (laughs) by stitch. And can you talk a little bit about the transition to using a tool? Yes. Um, so especially being chronically ill, how I physically make my work is extremely important. Um, it needs to be regenerative. It can't be something that is going to just drain me of my energy or cause pain. Um, so I started like a lot of artists, um, throughout our time actually working in bed. Um, and the, while I'm making a rug, I have a wooden frame, um, and monk's cloth is a sort of loose weave that, um, so you can see the holes through this base cloth, um, that is stretched over that frame and I just tack it in. Um, and then using a hand tool, which is, um, hand punching, which is sort of like embroidering. Um, You're just kind of penetrating that surface. And on the other side, a loop of yarn is forming and you're coming back in and going in and out. Um, So it's a really long, slow process, but one that I can do in bed or from my couch. Um, And because this um, sort of making sure that I'm taking care of myself is part of my process. The other thing is that working from bed is great. However, when it takes three months to make one piece, (laughs) that's not so great. So I'm sitting over this frame, you know, punching my back, um, looking down constantly. So, um, you know, too much of anything (laughs) can be a bad thing, um, sort of. So I eventually got a tufting gun, which now speeds up part of that process. So um, the tufting gun is electric and it moves at a much faster speed than I. Um, and it also has limitations. So I'm able to kind of bounce back and forth between using that and working from bed, um, with the hand tool to get different textures and, um, just move my body more throughout the making process. I think it's a really powerful image, just seeing you making something in bed. Um, Yeah, I think, and I've always worked from bed, like um, even before I was making rugs, when I, you know, was in high school and college, I was always drawing from bed, probably painting from bed, which is not great. You know, I'm sure there were a lot of uh, bed sheets that were stained (laughs) with paint (laughs) or covered in charcoal. Okay. There's a couple different threads I want to follow, which is why I paused. Um, so I've been kind of really thinking about these words that we use a lot in the art realm, somatics, embodiment as two different things, right? So and my understanding is that somatics is just referring to of the body, like soma meaning body, whereas embodiment is is the art of bringing something into form. So really embodiment is creativity. It's you have an idea, you have an emotion, you have an experience and you bring it into form, whether that's you share the emotional experience with someone else or you, or you create something out of, out of a thought or out of a feeling or sensation. And 
what does that bring up for you? Like the the word embodiment or somatics, you've already spoken to it a little bit. So if you don't have an answer, that's fine. But yeah. Well, yeah, I think what you're saying kind of, you know, is exactly that. So the somatics is sort of like the sensations that inspire the project or the piece or whatever it is that I'm doing. And then the embodiment is putting it into the world in my own way. Um, So whether that's like, I know we've been talking a lot about um, the studio and the studio within the home and how that's a really important part of my practice. And, um, you know, we, have experienced a lot of artists that have invited us into their dining spaces and how, um, you know, I think somatically it's like experiencing the smells and the need to kind of live in that way and be moving through the studio space into the living space constantly. And then the embodiment is actually putting that practice into play. Mm -hmm. So, um, as well as like with the rugs, you know, so the feeling, the sensation, somatically experiencing the pain and um, in my mind kind of imagining what that looks like or feels like outside of exactly what I'm experiencing. And then the embodiment is kind of how I can present it to somebody else. Beautiful. Yes. This makes me think of the challenges of creative process. Like you're someone who's been making art for a very long time and you, you know, whether or not you're aware of it, have a very astute ability to have a sensation come up, an idea and make something. But for a lot of people, they're very intimidated by that. They might have like a thought or a sensation they want. They might have an idea, but the bridge, like the space between the inspiration and the creation, um, you know, what have been some of your struggles with that? Like trusting your intuition and following through on the creative impulse. Yeah. I mean, I think trust is a big big word for that. Um, and also you kind of go through phases. So for example, like when I started making these rugs, I was really intimidated by it and, the tools that I had at the beginning weren't exactly the most efficient. So then I was stopping myself from moving forward because I wanted to wait until I had a better setup. And um, I've, you know, like I said before, being intimidated by writing and feeling like what I had to say wasn't worth putting it down. And um, I think it's a matter of moving through those feelings and just kind of, taking action which isn't always possible um but um i think trust like you're saying is a huge part of that like trust in yourself trust in your connections if you don't understand something or you don't know how to do something trust that you can ask someone that um you know i have experience working with wood and um you know being around power tools is not necessarily in like an intimidating idea to me but the idea that I don't have my own wood shop that I can go into 
that automatically kind of sets up a barrier. And then I'm thinking like, oh, well, I don't want to bother this person and have them re kind of introduce me to this tool or um, this idea is really big and heavy and I'm not going to be able to lift it myself. So I'm going to have to ask for help there. So I think asking questions, asking for help, um, as well as like asking yourself those questions and allowing you to just go with it. (laughs) I love that. Um, Because the image of the artist in the studio, right, is like this image of a mad, mad woman or mad man alone in their space (laughs) creating. Not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) It's not wrong. But also, um, we really do need each other. And and I imagine asking for help, even just asking for help could be like a whole <laughs> a whole inlet, I feel like, for your work, because it's vulnerable to ask for help. Um, and I guess I don't really have a question on that, just a response, but I'm thinking about this word trust and spirit spirit spirituality which is a word i um i think the art community is a little scared of sometimes but i think of spirit really as life force like energy right so um would you say that there's a spiritual process for you in making art and in trusting, having faith in that impulse. Yeah. I mean, and I think that that kind of spills out into what we've been talking about and how like life and art spill into one another. And um, I have been thinking about a lot how to kind of like, It's almost like my morals, for example, like how my morals and how what I believe in and how I think that society needs to change shows up in my work as well as in my daily life and how I kind of incorporate that all into living throughout my day. Um, So I think that that's all kind of the closest thing to spirituality that I currently have. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think (laughs) creativity is absolutely spiritual and um, yeah. And you spoke to, to something really important, which is, you know, what, systemic issue or larger social phenomenon are you passionate about addressing through your work yeah so i mean the the main one really is like ableism and how um again that's a huge conversation that can go into disability rights as well as just what society kind of expects of us and what this capitalist system is and how it doesn't really allow for the success of people that um, are chronically ill. Um, And if it does allow for their success in societal standards, it's, it's taking something away from them 
outside of that. Um, so that's kind of where the my personal experience is and what major systemic issue I'm talking about. But the other things that I'm thinking about um, throughout that, you know, is within the medical field, the racism, sexism, transphobia, fatphobia that all are within the Western medical world. And, um, you know, those are something that I can't speak as a white woman from my personal experience, but I think it's all really important and uh, kind of is my work might be a jumping off point for someone that has experienced those things. It's really important. I'm just, what keeps coming up in my mind is this like narrative and belief that is ingrained in all of us, at least in the West, that you have to keep up. So what happens when someone can't keep up and like what happens inside a human being when they feel invisible or unseen because you don't really see um, chronically ill folks um, visible in the community a lot. Um, That's where your work is so powerful because it's really bringing visibility to something unseen. And unfortunately we need to see to believe a lot of things. Chronic illness goes kind of is woven throughout that, like the invisibility of certain symptoms and things like that. And, you know, I've literally had conversations with my bosses. I won't say whether or not they're current or not, um, where I'll basically be like, yeah, like this 42 hour work week is not sustainable for me. My weekends consist of resting. That's it. Um, and them nodding and yeah, I get that. And that's that, that's the end of the conversation (laughs) or like, um, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's an invisibility and it's like, in order to keep my job though, I can't complain too much in certain circumstances, or that means that I can't keep up with the tasks or I feel like I can't be upfront about it because of that. Um, And there are some great systems that can help. Some are statewide, some are federal, some are within, you know, um, private companies that allow you to apply for certain things, but that doesn't mean that it's guaranteed. So, right. This leads me to you know, the question, how can we help, but on a larger scale? So in using that example of presenting someone with a a reality of the body, right? Like my body cannot do what you're asking me to do. Um, When we're unfamiliar with something, it's easy to just like bypass it or get nervous instead of go closer, right? To like back away. So, um, like what feels when someone gives you a nourishing, like empathetic response, like, what does that feel like? What does that sound like? Honestly, I don't, I'm trying to think of an example that has felt nourishing. Um, 
you know, I've worked with people in the past and I've, I have coworkers now um, that all get it. You know, they understand and they are understanding and um you know when when you're not feeling well and someone says oh you should go home without a but or you know we worked extra hours and used our physical labor for this job which means maybe we all need an extra day to recuperate um, you know, things like that, that seem like they should be a given almost, um, that just aren't. And they're not in a lot of work environments. They're not in just a lot of environments in general, um, in at least our society that I can speak to. So. Yeah. So the word I'm hearing is like validation. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, validating another person's experience. So that also for me leads to diversity, like true, what does true diversity, equity, and inclusion feel like that means validating another person's experience or trusting that if someone is, is expressing something to us that it's real, you know, and (laughs) it's, it's so, it's kind of like a mind warp to to think otherwise but really (laughs) a lot of the time like we're actually really uncomfortable with diversity we're really uncomfortable with things that don't align with our field of perception so yeah so that's that even comes through with like or people that don't have children versus people that that do there's often like a real disconnect between the work like the work environment and how much like mm-hmm. their kids are allowed to come into conflict with that professional experience, which I think is a little bit more direct that more people can understand maybe. But um, yeah, it's just, it's almost like, of course you should leave to take your child to the doctor or pick them up from daycare. How How is that a question? But for some people that just don't see it that way that have this like um well you have a job to do kind of mindset it just doesn't make any sense to I think people that empathize with it as well as people that are going through it Mm, this speaks to something even bigger and really important to me this is a good example because when you're speaking of that person who's going to leave work to take care of their child, right? And then that's an accepted priority versus taking care of ourselves, like ourselves. That's not an acceptable priority, actually, in pretty much any space I've been in. Um, You know, I think we're moving in a good direction. But what this brings up is something in your work, which is the child, like the role of the child. And Little Becca is in a lot of Becca's work. When you look back at yourself as a child, what are the your favorite things about Becca as a young one? <laughs> oh gosh. Um, so little Becca was a goofball. <laughs> I also had like <laughs> all these projects in mind. Like I was always doing something <laughs> like 
choreographing a dance on the front sidewalk with my neighbors or uh, directing the entire child group of uh, the entire neighborhood of children between the ages of like five and 13 on how to dig a snow fort. That was the entirety of my front lawn. (laughs) um, So I was always doing things like that, but I was also really soft-spoken and um, really emotional. So I, I'm always looking back and wondering, like, how did I do that? How was I so able to be so caring and nice and, like, empathetic, really, but at the same time, so ambitious? (laughs) And I think that that's just some a space that I live in, like, questioning that and how that's how I bring that into my current self. Um, and yeah, the, I mean, and then there are also, you know, on the extreme side of it, there are totally times when I didn't speak up as a a little one and I could have, and I think that I should, I guess I'm right now, I'm thinking a lot about how I bring, how I bring all of that into me now and like how to like you were saying before, trust it and how I wish that I trusted myself more at the time. I wish that I could have both the confidence and tell myself to have more of it. <laughs> like, So for someone who was born into a sensitive body, an empathetic body, a body that had capacity for a lot of joy and a lot of grief, right? like the capacity to feel everything, which I think a lot of artists do. Some of the dysfunctions of our world may be reflected in our body. That's something that's coming up. Sometimes we have awakenings or experiences because because our body's open, because we're feeling and receiving what's coming in. So what I really appreciate about you, and you can really feel it in the work, which is like hard to do, is the power of joy and humor and how that is like, that really is a reflection of a giant capacity to love. Witnessing your process over the past couple of years, I feel like you've been leaning more and more into that and that that is something that an audience will really benefit from. It just, if it feels so powerful and, and what I'm trying to say is like, it's, it's perfect as it is. Like it's exactly what our world needs. Um, We're constantly attuning to the negative. Um, So just by nature, it's our, we're designed in a way to do that. So to, to draw out the positivity, the joy, the humor, is like just what we all need more of. (laughs) Oh, thank you. And I guess if there was a question in that, it might be the body as a site of the world. Like Mm -hmm. the body as a sort of landscape where we are experiencing the dysfunction and the beauty of our world. Right. So, and I think that it's all, you know, 
our trauma shows up, our um, stresses show up. Like we've already discussed how I know for a fact that if I'm experiencing stress, some of my symptoms are going to flare like it's their job, which apparently it is. Um, But I also, you know, like we were saying, what you eat, what like that's uh, I think um, an easier thing for people to understand, like what you're what you're eating and is what you're putting into your body. So if I eat gluten, my body is going to react negatively. Like if I put in all this sadness and stress, my body is going to react in another way. Um, And I'm thinking I'm flashing through my mind. I have a coworker and he's constantly talking about like how we need to eat more green things to have like the positive energy from the color green. Um, And I think that that that's appropriate for every aspect of our life. Like as we take it in, we're going to distill it and whatever way we do that. um, I don't think we necessarily have a choice of how it comes out, but I think that we have a choice to move through how it kind of synthesizes and use it, whether that's pain, joy, laughter, whatever it is. I think that we have the option. We have more options than we think sometimes when we have really these really intense emotions. That's beautiful. And I almost feel like it's the perfect place to close. I guess one more, one more thing then. If you had some wisdom to impart on your younger self, but maybe also in that there is wisdom for future generations, um, what would that be? I feel like this is the hardest question. Um, I, well, I think I mentioned it a little bit more. Like, I wish that. I could have told my little self to like speak up more um, that my opinion mattered and that I could trust what I felt. I think um, I definitely, you know, even though I was this little fireball that, (laughs) and I had that quiet side as well. And I think that um, there were definitely situations that, throughout life like even not even just talking about my work specifically and being in a doctor's office but you know the whole respect your elders or listen to your elders I think respect is a good word for it because you can respect someone and still not listen to everything that they say and still not agree with it um so I wish I was there to tell myself that and that I was allowed to present my opinion um I don't care if you're seven. I don't care <laughs> if you're 80, you're allowed to have an opinion and present it. And if it is something that is going to cause you yourself harm, you're allowed to um, speak up. And I think that that goes for others as well. As we you know, start to have more compassion for ourselves, we can have more compassion for the people around us. So I think that I'll leave it there. (laughs) I think that. (laughs) So good. Thank you, Becca. I love this conversation. And um, yeah, 
It was great. Thank you for having me.